After a short hiatus for a pair of episodes, six and seven of Better Call Saul, off-brand and expenses are the titles. The episodes are pretty complimentary, so this works out pretty well. Uh, episode six is more on the cartel side of things. Lots of Nacho and Gus and Mike as well. With the Jimmy stuff being Jimmy and Chuck, very focused on that. Then episode seven, there's Nacho and Mike still, but there's no Gus, no Chuck, no Howard, none of that. And a good bit more of Kim. <laughs> Meta elements. Right. As for the titles, off-brand, I originally thought of it as in, you know, off-brand generic. And then I realized that it means off-brand as in Jimmy is off his brand of being a lawyer. Yeah. And also maybe Nacho's dad being pulled off-brand by Hector. Uh, Oh, yeah. Good call. And then in expenses, that one was pretty explicitly stated. We saw Jimmy and Kim going over their expenses... But Mike also has expenses, as does Nacho, really. And so does Joey. The film crew, they have their own expenses, right? (laughs) Yeah, I really liked that, how he says that, and it cuts right to Jimmy and Kim going over the expenses. It's like a scale. We get to see everyone from high to low and what they have to deal with in terms of finances. It's interesting. So a couple little references they snuck in there. uh, When Jimmy is deciding to go incognito, he doesn't want to ruin his brand as a lawyer, so he needs a different persona here. And he refers to Karloff this thing. He's talking about Boris Karloff, who played Frankenstein and the Mummy. He was kind of a famous actor, even though you never really saw what he looked like. Yeah, exactly. Another kind of subtle reference that they had here was Bunny Lake is Missing. That was the movie playing when Chuck is wandering through urban civilization. Peter Gould mentioned that he was always confused by how a lake could go missing. Of course, Bunny Lake is a girl, but the title uh, is pretty funny, so he decided to throw in a reference to it. It would be strange to have a whole body of water just missing. (laughs) Also, of course, the very obvious reference to Kevin Costner, who he claims he looks like and says people come up to him and say that, hey, I loved you and this and that. And she says, nope. Maybe he's flattering himself, but I see it. I see it. <laughs> nope, never happened. Not once. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. Shoutouts to Wonder Woman, the Mariovingian, Giles with three S's, JP Soso, Columbus Doc, and Yup OK for giving us reviews on iTunes. If you leave us an iTunes review, we'll give you a shout out too. Narrative. So episode six starts off with Nacho. We see this scene with him and Hector, but we also see the return of a character from Breaking Bad who we've seen in Better Call Saul before. That is Crazy 8, Domingo Molina, who doesn't have all of his money and it doesn't exactly work out for him. (laughs) Nacho ends up beating him up off screen. Who works for who? Which is really just more chilling when you don't see what's actually happening and you just hear the sounds of violence. It was pretty gruesome. While not being gruesome. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Not being visually gruesome, but your imagination. (laughs) Something that was visually gruesome was Nacho cutting himself with the sewing machine at his father's shop. But he doesn't react to it at all. It's like he just kind of looks at it curiously like, hmm, this is a thing that happened. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that kind of, I think that tells us a little something about just how resolved he is and how focused he is in general. And well, how preoccupied his mind is, this concern over his relationship with Hector and everything, what he's having to do, questioning if it's really himself, you know. He yeah, doesn't what's even a feel little, the, yeah. Yeah, he, oh, my finger got pierced. I just beat this dude up, you know. Yeah, yeah it's nothing. Yeah, you're right. We later see Nacho and Arturo, that's the guy that always has the red hair tie, meeting up with Victor and Tyrus at what's the Los Poyos Hermanos chicken farm. That's from Breaking Bad. And Hector has Nacho push his luck. But I like that this scene has you wonder a little bit about whether it's Hector telling him to do it or Nacho doing it. You eventually see that it is Hector, but it leaves you wondering. Yeah, definitely. We get a nice tension scene there where Nacho also shows basically in this in a different way how relaxed he is and how calm he is. But this all feeds into what was developing in the prior episodes with Hector pushing himself on Gus as much as possible and Gus going along with it for for more of a long-term goal. Yeah, Tyrus calls Gus, who is looking at a certain laundromat. Speaking of long-term goals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we see this laundromat in Breaking Bad eventually, of course, and it's a long-term thing to get this thing turned into a meth lab. So we're seeing the beginning of that, and we also see the beginning of his relationship with Lydia Rodart Quayle. Yeah, that was a nice little surprise at the end there. That was a small scene, however, just a brief interlude almost, and then we get back to the meat of it with Nacho, who is the new Tuco, basically, he's the new money counter, and that's what Tuco's job used to be. And we also learn a little bit of news about Tuco. Yes, Tuco is supposed to just be doing a quick six months in prison, but of course his temper flares, he gets in a fight, and now who knows how long he's going to be there. Breaks a guard's jaw. Yeah. <laughs> that is not smart. <laughs> And we see, ironically, Hector lose his temper over this, you know? <laughs> it's odd that he could be so upset with someone doing the same thing he's doing, you know? <laughs> we follow that up with Hector putting a new demand on Nacho. So in this table-flipping moment that Hector has, Nacho, in the corner of his eye, sees one of Hector's pills go on the floor and, you know, moves his foot over it so he can pick it up later. And he's developing a plan because he wants to counter the plan that Hector's developing to involve his father in this drug business. He doesn't want to get his dad mixed up in this. He knows it's going to end bad. He doesn't like the idea of it. He probably doesn't really like being in his business in the first place. It's kind of what we see. I particularly like this whole line here because I always think it's very interesting in movies and TV shows and everything when there's all these, you know, usually the focus is on these good guys and they go up against the bad guys. And usually the bad guys like one old white dude dressed in black and he has a bunch mm-hmm. of henchmen but all these henchmen have stories oftentimes if you think about it they're freaking heroes it's the feats they go through driving and shooting the danger they put themselves in and it's interesting to see how these henchmen get to this point they have real lives and personalities and families and everything else and we're kind of seeing that for nacho he's not just this he's not just a gangster he's not just this blank face in the background he's a person he has his own concerns and his own frustrations and everything else you know right on we also get a bit of an unexpected return the character daniel wormald aka price the hilarious the hilarious pharmaceutical bumbler who manages to be both clever and completely idiotic at the same time <laughs> and we love him from the office so he's a special favorite here we weren't covering better call Saul in previous seasons or we might have brought this theory up before, but it's been long speculated that Daniel Wormald is Laser Tag Danny, who is Mm -hmm. someone who Saul brings up when he's trying to 
find a place for Walt to launder money, um, I think in season five or something like that, and he just mentions it offhand. You see the location, and it's got this red and yellow theme, and I'm sure you all remember that Daniel Wormald has red and yellow theme on everything, from his shoes to his car. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and so I think it strongly hints at him being laser tag Danny, also because the kind of guy he is, you could see him running a laser tag place. Yeah, <laughs> he would think it's cool and fun. He wants to do cool, fun things. Yeah. They would probably have a baseball theme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he originally wanted a batting cage, but settled <laughs> on the laser tag. One batting of- cage Danny just doesn't sound as good. <laughs> I was really excited about Price returning. I think his character is great. I, I like him as an actor even. And uh, it was also a good moment when uh, he's coming through. I was even a little suspicious that the scene was unfolding and he's unlocking all the locks, you know, coming into his house and punching a code. And I'm just in my mind I'm thinking, man, he's really got some security. I guess it makes sense after someone, oh, that was right there. <laughs> we got a little comedic moment of his reaction to it also. It was a good scene. I liked the juxtaposition of all those locks on his door and the knocks are just going out the sliding glass. Yeah. <laughs> and then later when Mike tells him, he's like, he probably just cut your phone line yeah. or disconnected your phone yeah. line. He's like, oh, is that all? Oh. <laughs> Speaking of Mike, Mike eventually collides with this Nacho and Daniel plotline, but first we start off with him meeting with Stacy at this support group. Yeah, it seems to be some kind of support group for people who have lost a loved one or a spouse or a child or something like that. We haven't heard the stories of most of the people there. And that's why, of course, his daughter-in-law is there. And that's his only scene in episode six. But then he's far more featured in episode seven when we see him actually working on the concrete that Stacy signed him up to do <laughs> and reluctantly accepting some help. Yeah, it seems to be good for him a bit. He, you know, he does, he is slow to accept the help, but they are not going away. They are insistent on helping and he relents. It's kind of an awkward thing to keep insisting on. No, I'm not, you cannot help. You cannot help. No. <laughs> so Mike starts to meet people a little bit, you know, and he obviously that eventually culminates in his conversation with Anita who tells about her husband going missing hiking and keeping only his uniform, stuff like that. Before that happens, though, he does meet with Daniel. Daniel comes to his work, Price, and tries to get him involved in what he's involved in. Mike doesn't seem to know, other than the fact that it involves Nacho. He doesn't know that it involves pills or that it involves Hector necessarily, though maybe he could put some pieces together. It was pretty shrewd of Mike to figure out that whatever Danny is up to had something to do with Nacho, because his only clue was that Danny yelled it out in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike says no, he won't work with him on this. Then he goes to another support group meeting. Anita talks about this story that you mentioned, disease, and we do see that Mike's attention is drawn by this. When she mentions the uniform, he turns his head, just slowly turns it towards her, and afterwards actually approaches her to talk about it and even Stacy notes that this is different than his normal actions but we're not sure why he then calls Daniel saying he's in what instigated this it's really puzzling something we talked about a lot before this episode and we didn't get we didn't reach any kind of consensus conclusion no one seems to have a really strong opinion there's a lot of options here and Mike's motivations at this point are hard to discern except for a couple of things we know he's very dedicated to his family and we know he hates Hector Salamanca and there may still be some lingering grudge there and we know he's going to end up working for Gus and now we know that he wants one more thing from Nacho which I think is a major clue towards what changed his mind here 
There was one other little subtle thing that happened I thought was noteworthy, not quite sure how to connect it, but he did say when talking to Anita, she's realizing he doesn't know the whole story because he's new to the group. So she elaborates he was in the Navy and everything, right? But Mike says, that's what we're here for. He seems to be joining this group, not just going oh, along yes. with his stepdaughter, but he seems to be joining it, you know. And so the timing of how right after this conversation he calls to do the deal or whatever makes me wonder if something she said or something about this group, if he wants to help the church out or somehow he thinks Nacho can be involved in it. The money doesn't seem to matter, right? Because when Danny tells him, I, I guess the original deal was 2000 he's like, 3000 Mike's like, oh, don't care, I'm out of here, 3000 And we see Mike has this huge bag of money, you know, not that he doesn't care about money at all, but it doesn't seem like that's a thing that's swinging him into this, right? He doesn't care about $3,000 in particular, and he doesn't care about money at the, you know, expense, uh, get it, yeah. of everything else, you know? He, eventually it does cost him everything, it seems, but he still isn't going to just jump into business with foolish Daniel Wormald necessarily, which is kind of why I was thinking that he might have maybe unlocked, is maybe a strong word, but tapped into his empathy here. and realized that he wants to get involved for that reason because Nacho and Daniel are going to get themselves into trouble. He just generally wants to help them, you say. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. That's yeah. the only one I could think of that I feel would be spurred on by that conversation. Yeah, he certainly offers advice to Nacho that is very good advice. Nacho, clearly through his facial expressions, has accepted the advice and, and, and seems to value it. Make sure you switch the pills back. And that does seem like a really smart thing to do if he's going to do it. And this advice comes completely with no strings attached. Except for when he asks for that one thing. That one thing that he's going to write on a notepad that we haven't figured out. So that seems to be, even though we don't know what that one thing is, it seems to be maybe the reason that he decided to get involved after initially declining to be involved. I think you raised a good point when we were talking about this episode before recording Aziz, that the fact that Mike doesn't immediately start writing points to the fact that he's not writing down something for Nacho to get him. He wants Nacho to write something down for him. Or to tell him something that he can write down. Yeah. Yeah, maybe an address or a phone number or something, but... Yeah. At this point, it's just pure speculation. I assume and hope we'll find out soon. And I can't decide if I want it to be just something we couldn't have known or something that we should have figured out. I can't <laughs> decide. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. Okay, so back to Jimmy. There's a lot happening here. The story picks up with the Bar Association. Kim's closing remarks cut with... Rebecca going to see Chuck. There's uh, voiceovers there. And Rebecca does not succeed, of course. And she instead pivots and goes to meet with Jimmy and Kim. That doesn't exactly go so well either. Yeah, they're in the middle of celebrating, basically, when she arrives and she sees that and is aghast at it. Yeah. One thing I want to point out is I appreciate that the show continues to pick up immediately where the last episode left off. You know, we're right at the end of the, the hearing. It finishes, and right after the hearing, it picks back up. I, I like that they do that. And I also thought that was a good a good moment, a really good moment, the way she shows up, you know, kind of frustrated and confused, and they're drinking champagne. And she tells him off a little bit, and Jimmy tries to stand his ground. And maybe Jimmy, you know, at the moment, his frustration is, is resilient to, to her guilt trip. But Kim was not. I don't think Kim was at all. And that became even more clear in the next episode. Yeah, it was a big deal for her. It was kind of an inverse. We get two almost parallel conversations where Howard tells Chuck... Jimmy's not worth it. And then Jimmy tells Kim that Chuck isn't worth it. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, the pal giving the pep talk to the brother. It's the other way around. It's Jimmy declaring it to Kim. But 
that doesn't satisfy Kim about Rebecca, because she was kind of an innocent bystander. Jimmy made it sound like she was collateral damage that couldn't be helped. And come on, Kim's a lawyer. She's not buying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when Howard goes to talk to Chuck, he brings him a special gift, a bottle of Macallan, which is a particularly prestigious alcohol. And there's been a little bit of confusion based on the date that it has there. It's marked 1966 and it's 35 years old, but the aging stops at the bottling process. So it was bottled, you know, in 2001 or 2002 and then consumed in 2003. It's not immediate that it's bottled and sold. So the episode is set in 2003, not 2001 or 2002, as some people had thought. Okay. Chuck seems to accept... This pep talk, he seems to agree. It kind of brings him out a little bit. And then he goes out a lot, come walking out into the city. And there are lights, and it certainly seems to be made from his perspective because everything's really shiny and it's really bright. And he's really, and he's disoriented. We're wondering, where is he going? What's happening here? And he makes a phone call, and he's trying to talk to his old therapist. And we kind of are left there because there's none of that in episode seven. So mm -hmm. we still wonder what... He's got in mind, maybe he just wants to be healthier. Maybe he is accepting that this isn't real, that his, you know, that it is a mental illness, that it's, it's entirely possible. He is an intelligent guy. I'm sure that he doesn't go through this whole hearing and confrontation with Jimmy and the legal world witnessing it, thinking, oh, I guess it's all just normal. No, I think he's got to face this on some level. And he starts off with a baby set, pulling out the battery there. Just because this condition he has isn't, quote unquote, real doesn't mean he doesn't really feel it but it maybe gives him hope that he really can't overcome it yeah i mean that's why he holds that battery in his hand it seems there are certainly other theories out there i mean he could be trying to make himself worse for all we know mm -hmm. i don't think that's likely but it is technically possible hmm. we get some really really great scenes with jimmy throughout these episodes with him doing these commercials basically but for him to realize that he can sell the commercials he had to realize that he has to pull his commercials which he almost didn't he almost <laughs> ruined his probation by running ads on accident the only reason he realizes it is because he has to call his clients in a very painstaking scene where you really see how many people he had to call and how long it took him but thankfully, at the very last one, he does realize he yeah, has to the, pull them. the actual last one. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I really did like that scene, too. It was very efficiently made. It's sort of a montage, but it gets the idea across and gets some humor. And also, you know, you see the, how tough this is for Jimmy. He's got to kind of swallow his pride. He's got to figure out how to word this. He wants to maintain, you know, relationships with these clients after the fact. It's He's in a really tough spot. You know, the truck is... I want to say Chuck's really made things hard on him, but, you know, Jimmy did start this with Chuck, but maybe Chuck started with Jimmy beforehand. One way or the other, Jimmy's going to blame Chuck for all this. <laughs> yeah, and one way or another, Jimmy has it hard right now. I mean, it, it was painful to watch all of these setbacks that he's having, like just the embarrassment of having to call your clients and tell them this. It's just like, hard for me to imagine. Yeah, and then it just gets worse from there. We see him picking up trash, doing his community service, and being embarrassed by the probation officer. And he's cleaning himself up with a wet nap and working really hard. And I got to tell you, watching Jimmy work as a lawyer is awesome. He's really clever and the way he you know, stands tall and comes up with innovative arguments and solutions is really fun. But watching him try to be a Weasley salesman is really uncomfortable. <laughs> really do not like it. And that's the point. It's supposed to show how low he's had to sink to to do to keep it going to keep it together 
I'll tell you, I actually love seeing him sell his commercial packages and all that and be Saul Goodman. I I understand that it's, you know, sad or tragic, ultimately, but I I don't know. Saul Goodman was the character that I first fell in love with, and I love seeing him be that sleazy man. I think one thing that's tough about it, however you appreciate the salesmanship of it or not, or the toughness of Jimmy's situation... What we're seeing here is that the people he's pitching to, they just can't afford it. You know, even if he's making a perfect sales pitch and he's exactly right and they should do it, that doesn't mean they have the money for it, you know? Yeah, we first see him trying to go to the local businesses and just pitch them on this idea. But thankfully, Drama Girl comes up with an idea to run a commercial for commercials, which is genius and makes perfect sense, really. Yeah, first he was like, what are you talking... Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) That was really well done. Which leads us to the introduction of Saul Goodman to Kim Wexler. That guy's got a lot of energy. (laughs) Saul himself, he's kind of embarrassed. You know, he's hesitant to show this tape to Kim, but she kind of insists, makes fun of him for being shy all of a sudden, as, you know, outlandish as he can be sometimes. It doesn't... (laughs) <laughs> doesn't make sense for him to not yeah it doesn't make sense for him to not want to show this to her he was just so excited to show her the last one but then we kind of see why maybe he'd be embarrassed he's taking on this new persona kim seems to get it though she seems to appreciate it yeah i think you can see a hint of her realizing this might not be a good thing for him to do in terms of being in remission from being a scammer for him to put on some persona is probably not great that's the end of episode six and then it picks up in episode seven the first scene being jimmy's community service and he's hustling the whole way through earning his name charlie hustle that's right he's (laughs) making all these different phone calls regarding his personal life and trying to get business and the probation officer doesn't count all of his time even though he picked up more garbage than everyone else i just Man, is that infuriating. (laughs) It is frustrating, especially because I feel like, let's just say that he's going to not give Jimmy full credit for his time because he's on the phone, even if he did work hard. Can't he tell him that, you know, half an hour in instead of at the very end? You know, uh, seems like bullcrap. Yeah, it was like the least generous way of interpreting the rules that guy possibly could have done it other than giving him zero. Like yeah. he said. <laughs> so we're given the idea that this is half of his day most of the time. And then the other half of his day is doing the commercial side of things. And he spends a lot of this time with his film crew who are getting to know a little better. And they're becoming a funny little unit. I mean, they already were, but we're, it's ex- that it's expanded on. Like one scene, they're like bumping into each other as they each run, get into the different seats in the car. Scram- to get in, yeah, that was yeah. a funny scene. And the way they're a peanut gallery about like him starting his car and everything, like, hey, find the engine. <laughs> oh yeah, you find the engine, and just repeating each other, and and yeah, it's just fun, really funny. I think it's also funny that two of them don't even have names. They're just <laughs> drama girl slash makeup artist and boom guy, sound guy. Whereas the main one, the kind of cynical one with the glasses. He's is, getting paid anyway. Yeah, he's getting paid anyway. That's Joey is his name. So we at least have a name for one of them. Mm-hmm. It does seem like the the girl who's the treasurer of the drama club should get a name. She's had a... A significant impact multiple times you know i feel like she should have a name but i feel like maybe that's the joke is the running joke is that they are trying to stick with it or trying to run with it i wonder based on the fact that the writers directors showrunners just call her that they don't have a name for her themselves maybe it's even some kind of legal or union thing if she has a name they have to pay her more money or something like that i don't know it seems <laughs> like they wouldn't they would spare that expense you know yeah and she already has lines and stuff yeah 
Jimmy makes use of the film crew in more ways than one. He wears their clothes in his commercial that he films mm-hmm. for his commercials. And I took note of the fact that he looked way more like Gene there. He better watch out if anyone connects him to these <laughs> old commercials that ran during, like, Murder, She Wrote <laughs> 10 years before. But he's actually meant to be evocative of Steven Spielberg when he was filming E.T. and Rob Reiner in the movie This Is Spinal Tap, which... Uh-huh. Uh, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan mentioned that they consider that look to be like the prototypical director look. You know, the baseball cap, the button-up shirt with a jacket. Mm -hmm. A major scene we see this in is, of course, the furniture store with the guy doing his commercial. And it's a great example of good, bad acting. Yeah, yeah. Or bad, good acting, which way, whatever. (laughs) We got that from the film crew, too, when he was realizing he couldn't be himself doing his commercial he tried to get them to do the lines and they were not good at doing the lines i i appreciate good bad acting things are definitely pretty rough for jimmy his car breaks down they have to take the bus on recommendation of drama girl who (laughs) again just has her suggestion taken without a single word from jimmy saying oh good idea or thank you (laughs) he just "Let, let me take a second We'll take the bus. Yeah, she has all the good ideas. <laughs> Let me think of a good idea. The one you just said. <laughs> <laughs> but they do manage to get to the music store that they're going to to shoot these twins who are running a music store together. And these actors are actually pretty well known. They're the Sklar brothers, Randy and Jason. And they're pretty big on YouTube. And the characters raise some pretty valid concerns about something I hadn't even considered when he was trying to sell it, that the time slot that Jimmy has is not great. (laughs) Yeah, not at all. I will say, I feel like he should have pushed the angle that you can try to get grandparents to buy their kids and grandkids instruments as gifts. If they're going to be on in an old person slot, angle it towards old people. You should have targeted the commercial at those grandparents. That should have been his angle, saying, hey, you can buy your kid a guitar here at BQ in tune. He does tell them that he'll do the commercial for free and that they'll see more traffic and then they'll film for the original rate, which is quite a proposition and it made me concerned about whether or not Jimmy was going to manipulate this. Mm. I could totally see Jimmy hiring some random people. It only cost him $300 to go in there and talk about how they saw this awesome commercial. Make some phone calls, maybe even buy one thing. Yeah, and then he Maybe return it later, yeah. (laughs) But this experience of giving the commercial free and doing the steal leaves him really deflated. At the end of it, he just sits out in the parking lot and while the others go catch their bus. Deflated and broke. Yeah. (laughs) It was kind of a good moment, too. Again, we see Drama Girl being kind of featured here kind of as a good guy offering the money back. She kind of realizes the dire straits that Jimmy is in and is trying to help him out. She doesn't have it in her to just take the money like Joey keeps saying, hey, I'm getting paid either way. I don't care. She seems to care. But he's not willing to swallow his pride here. He does later play up this pathetic, deflated identity that he has right now in this malpractice insurance meeting. Yeah, he's going in to try to save himself some money on insurance that he thinks he doesn't need, but that's not going to work out. And then she gives him the bad news that when his suspension is up, his malpractice insurance is going to go way, way up, and this seems to genuinely shake him. And he pivots to revenge. (laughs) It's really quite a transformation. Yeah, he makes use of these tears and then just goes all out, says some real hardships that he's facing, but is very clearly playing it up to anyone that knows him. 
Yeah, at first it's genuine shock and, oh my God, this is really bad news on top of how hard things have been. And then it becomes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as he's realizing that he's screwed beyond just not being a lawyer for the next year. And he's trying to make the best. He's being Charlie Hustle about everything, but he's realizing Chuck is still sticking it to him in ways he didn't even anticipate. Doggone it. I'm going to stick it to Chuck in a way he didn't anticipate also. And this goes back to something we talked about earlier in the season with with Chuck lacking understanding of how Jimmy thinks. And a big mistake he's made here is thinking that this is going to be the end of it. (laughs) Chuck thinks that Jimmy will accept his punishment, learn from it, and then move on. He's like, no, no, that's not how Jimmy operates. And Jimmy is far more capable of doing damage than Chuck is. Jimmy is just more underhanded, more used to thinking in underhanded ways, and apparently he really has the motivation now, too. Chuck's also being a lot more idealistic than realistic. What did he think Jimmy was going to do in this next year? You know, just go to work at McDonald's? Like, does he just abandon everything in his life and totally start from scratch? You know, I don't... I wonder about it so much, I I hope they address it. You know, what, what exactly Chuck thought Jimmy would do. We touched on one of the main featured scenes with Kim already, that is Jimmy going over his expenses with her, but there's a little bit more to say about that. For instance, Kim clearly is able to tell that Jimmy has taken everything out of his bank account because he's got a nice, crisp, white envelope like you would get when you go to the bank to get all your money out. (laughs) So that's pretty clear, not very subtle. And then he's like, no, no, I'll buy the Chinese food. And I thought that this was kind of brilliant because it shows that Jimmy's so unwilling to swallow his pride that it hurts the delivery man. He doesn't get a good tip. He gets one dollar. Yeah, he's yeah. He makes it into a. He he kind of spins it instead of being like, "Hey, I just don't have enough money right now." He just becomes a jerk. (laughs) The same line that was used on him earlier in the day. Yep, (laughs) we can make it zero. (laughs) And then there's just more evidence for Kim to see later when he switches his credit cards and while they're drinking and says, "Oh yeah, I've got a, I've got a system to distribute the points." Like, oh come on, again, she's a lawyer. She's not buying this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And in that scene, we have a call back to a previous Jimmy and Kim scene, that's the same bar that they've been to before where they've, you know, scammed some people and kissed and whatnot. And I really liked this scene with the two of them and it really just makes you sick to your stomach when you're watching it because you can really see Jimmy's desperation and just how much Kim is worried for him, is scared for him, that he's going down this path and she can see that he's, he wants, he really wants to scam someone right here. Yeah, he has his credit card, this maxed out, you know, his mind is spinning in all these illegal activities. He's in this moment of desperation. He hasn't been there in a long time, and now that he is, he's going back to his old ways, which again, you know, what did Chuck think was going to happen? And, you know, another thing I detected a little bit here was Jimmy's disdain for these other cocky, wealthy people around, you know what I mean? Yeah, Uh, He, uh, especially for the guy that was being actively rude, the guy who... I imagine maybe was acting like Chuck might act. You know, the guy who seemed maybe to himself be a scammer was like, aha, I took him for every dollar he had. Jimmy was like, ah, not him. Let's get this other guy over here. This guy that's acting like a dick, you know. You could see how he was kind of channeling his disdain for these people into justification for scamming them. Yeah. And Kim was seeing that too. And she reeled him back in. She's like, so we're just talking, right? We're not really doing this, right? And Jimmy's like, yeah, yeah, we're just talking. (laughs) Yeah. But then she brings them back to just talking about scamming people to try to, I don't know, distract him, console him. Yeah, because in between there, yeah, in between there was him telling her to leave Chuck in the rearview mirror. 
So she's like, okay, fine. Chuck's in rearview mirror. Let's play our game. How would we scam this guy? You know, mm-hmm. she's trying to stay positive around Jimmy, I think, but I think she sees a fall coming. And she's also exhausted. That's one of the themes yeah. that we see her taking a five minute nap and she snaps at Paige in her way of snapping. You know, it yeah. was still pretty mild, but it was certainly over the line. She immediately apologized for it. It was okay, but it was very telling. Yeah, I really liked that scene with her meeting with Mesa Verde, with meeting with Paige herself. Specifically, one of the reasons is what you were mentioning, Aziz, that you see her apologize there. You see her, like, take stock and say that, no, I was out of line. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I don't know. I just thought that said a lot about Kim's character in general. I thought when she slams the book down, it says a lot about how she, you know, has an outburst even. It wasn't very extreme or anything like that, but it was at something that felt like she wasn't being taken seriously or valued, per se. But it was not because of that, really. She was taking that as her excuse to have an outburst, but the real reason is she then confesses to Paige is that she just feels guilty about the Chuck thing. She says all we did was tear down a sick man and she just feels awful about it. And that was part of why she snapped at Paige was that Paige was making it into like a you just destroyed him. Who talks like that? She was just making fun of him and, and she, she was giddy. Yeah, and, yeah. She, and that made Kim uncomfortable. Because it was just the other end of the spectrum whereas yeah. Kim's feeling guilty about it and Paige is trying to praise her for it and she just she can't accept that. Yeah. She, she also so maybe feels guilty about having tarnished Chuck's name and 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 it worked and she's seen the effect it's having and she doesn't it doesn't sit well with her. I agree that was an outstanding scene all around. Visual elements. Episode six starts with a pretty great opening shot. So does episode seven, but to start with episode six, it starts with the coffee being poured for Hector, just this macro close shot of it, and I always love those. But this opening sequence with the cartel side of things also had some of the most stunning film work they've done in the whole show which are these shots of nacho sewing where there's this one shot where you see his eye and it's reflecting the scene before him it's showing the sewing machine i just thought it was really well done how clearly you could see that it was gorgeous and then they grow some injury which was not gorgeous <laughs> <laughs> no man i do not like blood and needles just so you know man that was a and i do not like hand injuries that's that's my <laughs> thing <laughs> so it's something for both of us <laughs> There are a couple of details from the Better Call Saul Insider podcast that I wanted to highlight that directly related to visual elements. You guys should definitely be listening to the Insider podcast if you aren't. But one of them is that the chicken farm that they go to, the Los Pollos Hermanos chicken farm, apparently isn't there anymore. So they had to use some visual effects to recreate (laughs) it on the outside, which is interesting. Another little update they had to make for the show is the sign for Jack in a Box has changed from modern times to back, you know, in early 2000s when this was set. Yeah, so they didn't catch that right away, and they had to cut the shots where you could see Jack in the box. (laughs) Very funny. Also, Chuck's colorful jaunt into civilization, just really well-filmed, awesome filming effects, and there's more we can say about that. But a funny little meta thing about it is that when they filmed it and brought it down to the editing crew, they... We're like, oh, what happened to this this film stock? It's so overexposed, et cetera. So they like edited it to make it normal looking because they didn't make a note that they wanted it to look like that. So they had to like go back. <laughs> unedit it. Yeah, unedit it, basically. Ironically, for the star wipes, which are sort of an basic old school editing technique. It's never been done to have that. Yeah. <laughs> 
at the time, you know, in the early 2000s, it was groundbreaking, right? But nowadays, that's so uh, remedial that the editing software that they use for Better Call Saul couldn't even do that. They didn't even have that taste, so they had to, like, turn to some other older technology yeah, to make that Yeah, they had to do the some workaround. It's so funny yeah. to me that they couldn't do those wipes. I think I went back and watched it and counted 11 times, 11 star wipes. I think the previous record was only seven, so they blew it away. <laughs> One of my favorite shots in the whole show is from season one, that iconic shot of Kim and Jimmy standing outside, silhouetted, smoking a cigarette, passing it back and forth. And we've seen that echoed here in most recent episodes, and we've seen it again in episode six and seven. But in episode seven, they brought a chair out. Yeah. (laughs) I really liked that. They both need some rest. They both had some long days. (laughs) Good point. One visual element that Saul picked out well was having the commercial for commercials being filmed in a bunch of broadcast satellites. And so in turn, I want to give credit to the showmakers to decide to have Saul decide to do that. I thought that was a good moment, a good scene. They mentioned, by the way, that just like that commercial had to be filmed very quickly, they decided, okay, well, we'll just film it really quickly. They kind of had to, but they decided to roll with it because it fit perfectly. One of the comedic visual elements that I like whenever we see the film crew is that they have that boom sticking out of the film crew's car, (laughs) which is just so funny, especially because most booms are like they collapse a little bit Mm -hmm. so you can fit them. But it's just a really funny touch. At one point, I wondered, what do they do if it rains? But it probably doesn't rain that often. (laughs) (laughs) During Mike's one scene in episode six, we get a great visual shot, which is this slow pan from Stacy talking all the way around the room to Mike sitting there. And you get to see everyone's reactions for a moment, who's in the support group. It was a good way to kind of slow roll the fact that Mike was present at this meeting even. Yeah. Another scene that I thought was really well done visually was when the Los Poyos Hermanos people were unloading the truck. You could see the activity that they were going through and unloading the truck overlaid on top of other activities that they're doing so that you can see how long it takes them in a very short amount of time by just seeing how many steps there were within this truck to just unload it. Like the truck image stayed the same, but the people inside of it kept doing a bunch of different things. But you just get a... A quick image of each thing with fading over yeah. images of another thing. So it was a, a, a twist on a montage, I guess. As is usual, I like their intros. The, the opening moment, the opening sequence. We start off with Jimmy against that brick wall, which, you know, that red color probably means something. We'll talk about that more like we always do. But you're kind of wondering, what's he doing? Where is he? Is this a flashback? Is he waiting? What's going on here? And then more people randomly just start to show up without interacting with them. It's such an odd mystery. But then once you realize what's going on, like, oh, it makes perfect sense. I feel like they do that over and over again with the show. And I really like that opening sequence. And in retrospect, it has some great meaning. You know, we've already talked about how Jimmy's being Charlie Hustle here. And he is the first one there. He's yeah. the first one in line. And it allows us to see how these other cons, how these other people in trouble are holding themselves. You see them fidgeting or holds or standing a certain way. And it's just a great, and it's just a great array of people that are all unique in their own little way. An interesting detail about these scenes with him picking up trash under this overpass is that they were filmed with a drone. Yeah, drones are being used more and more for filming, and it's great. I've seen so many shots in the past couple of years that I feel like 
Spielberg or whoever would have just dreamed of in 1985, even 1995. They just would not have been able to imagine some of the shots that are just done on TV shows now, you know? It was a neat camera angle on Mike for the scene when he digs out his hidden money in the closet. And also a neat little note there, both in that scene and the scene where Jimmy earlier is pulling out money to give to Kim. Those are bills, you know, that's a different face. You know, every now and then the treasury changes the face of the bills. They had the right bills for that right time period. I thought that was a neat detail, the type of thing that these showmakers pay a lot of attention to. Another great shot with Mike was him evening out that concrete. It was really satisfying looking, honestly, especially <laughs> also when he had Anita speckle it and make and make it so the kids won't slip. I don't know. It was just really good looking. So in this scene with Anita helping out Mike with the concrete, she's wearing a pretty distinct purple. She has a, a yellow top, but a very definitively purple vest over top of that. We've seen purple a couple of the times. Generally speaking, it's a cooler color, which tends to be on the side of good or lawful, as far as we can tell. But she also had the yellow. It makes me a little curious about her character and what that meaning has. And a few other characters come to light, more what they wear, you know, wondering what they might matter. Francesca has also been wearing a lot of purple. Generally speaking, cool colors, but I think she had pink on one time. It was a couple episodes ago, and purple also. With blue. I thought it was very notable that Stacy was wearing, like, a blue shirt with, like, a green jacket on, which makes sense for her, especially if we're thinking green at least has some relation to money, which I think it has to have multiple meanings, one of which would be money. And Stacy is clothed in Mike's money, so to speak, but yeah. not tinted herself she's got the blue shirt on i don't know i think it's on purpose for sure some of the opening hector was in kind of a neutral gray and blue coloring which i think even though he's a bad guy in this moment he's being presented relative to nacho nacho is the person that people have got to come see and have the money counted and if it's not right nacho wearing red is going to bring the punishment also notable is that they're doing this business in a yellow building It has some green and red accents to it as well, to be sure. And when we see Crazy 8, he's wearing a green shirt, which is this Tampico furniture shirt, which is a reference to Breaking Bad. In Breaking Bad, he talks about how his father owned a furniture store, Tampico Furniture, and they were running ads for 30 years or something like that. And Hmm. Walter White mentions how his baby crib is Tampico Furniture. And so we see that he's working there. But the fact that he's in green also points to this money relation in some way. I I definitely think there are multiple meanings and we haven't sussed out what they are. I've wondered if maybe it represents a front, but there's sometimes when maybe it doesn't. I'm not sure. But now Nacho's father, who Nacho made it clear is straight and narrow, is not going to be mixed up in any crime. His shop is not yellow or red or even green. It's blue. It's definitely clear that he's not mixed up in any illegality. I thought it was notable that when Nacho goes to meet with the Los Poyos people, Tyrus and Victor, that Tyrus is wearing red and Nacho's in kind of a blue-gray shirt, but with a red undershirt. Mm -hmm. Again, relative to Tyrus, I feel like we're rooting for Nacho here, you know, relatively he's the good guy in this scene. Yeah, and he's hiding that he's going against Hector in some way, so it's underneath. The laundromat that Gus was at when they make the call to check with Gus if this is okay is just completely blue. Everything, the lighting, the background, what he's wearing, everything is totally in blue. And I think that's representing its legal safeness. That's why Gus is checking his place out because it's a great cover. And bringing it back to Breaking Bad, the laundromat was originally blue because blue was also somewhat associated with the blue meth. 
Yeah. Kim is in her typical blue. It should be like Kim Lindigo blue. like <laughs> But she's in blue and she is specifically in contrast to Paige in this scene with her talking to Paige where she's in this kind of brownish red jacket with a red desk and obviously Paige is the one reveling in Chuck being brought low. Yeah, I thought about that scene for a minute because I'm always looking at the color clues they're giving us and her in that kind of maroon color and the desk being that vivid bright red. I was like, whoa, is Mesa Verde or Paige up to something shady? But I think what it was is representing how Kim was surrounded by this negativeness. Does that make sense? She was overwhelmed. She couldn't just move past it. Remember, Paige even was like, oh, don't for- I've already forgot about it. You should too. But Kim just couldn't. It was just I'm thinking that the red representing the negativeness, you know, the being against what Kim believed in, if you will, is what Paige represents at this moment. And she just couldn't escape it. She couldn't just move on. There's just too, all this red representing it was just too laid out in front of her. I thought that was pretty meaningful. And I don't think Messe Verde or Paige are up to anything shady. I think it was just no. a sign of that moment of that scene. I also thought it was neat that the battery that Chuck decided to hold on to, to I guess, to test himself was blue. There's a lot of batteries out there. They could have had a, a, a yellowish gold color Duracell. There's red, you know, Everlast is red, but this one was blue. We've got a battery sponsorship, just to let you know. <laughs> I think it was to represent this is a goodness, a move he's making. The, this is positive energy, if that makes sense, you know, that he's trying to get hold of. We'll see soon, and I am ready to find out what Chuck is up to. <laughs> Other non-human things that had interesting colors were... For instance, that yellow goldfish in the blue tank, which I thought was brilliantly done when you see the goldfish just really stands out from the blue of the water in the tank. And then you see Jimmy kind of leaning down, looking at the goldfish. He's the goldfish, you know, in the blue Mm -hmm. tank. It just made me think a lot. And then you also get those quick cuts when he's doing that montage, calling all of his clients. You get some quick cuts to the goldfish. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They do seem to be making a point of the the yellow surrounded by blue. Another object that was featured was the pill that Hector dropped and that now Nacho is trying to get Daniel to get him more of so he can make a switch. Daniel, by the way, was wearing red when he went to meet with Mike. Hard to tell Mike's color, but it seemed like a gray-blue. I think we've seen his uniform that he wears to go to work before, and I think it is a bluish color. It was bluish. It was definitely dark slash neutral slash blue. It definitely wasn't red or yellow, yeah. right? Yeah. The thing that I've really taken note, though, in addition to that pill, which was like really kind of presented to us and another more subtle moment, but when the front of the restaurant where, you know, they're dealing with each other, Hector and Nacho, had green light cast on it and the, the window panes were painted green. The truck, the, the Los Polios truck, when they open that up, it's a green truck. Mike's closet was green. I'm like, man, there's a lot of green happening. Victor was wearing green in that that meeting that they had. Even the light fixture and the coming down from the ceiling, that was a green light fixture. So many different greens were coming up, and it could mean many different things, but it got me wondering because they didn't quite all seem to have a connection. Like, a lot of times it seemed related to money. A lot of times it seemed related to a cover or a front or, you know, something not being quite what it represented. It made me start thinking about other green that's been in the past. The Mexican doctor that Mike went to, his office was green. He was wearing green. The truck, the, the guy that Mike started tailing, you know, originally they were following him, but he turned the tables. The person he was following, their truck was green. This scene when Chuck was lording over Jimmy. 
that was he was wearing green in that moment, you know, after he was trying to preach to him after, you know, getting him arrested or whatever. I don't know if that represents money. Maybe it represents a front that Chuck's putting on. I think it represents multiple things. And those are two of the things. And oftentimes those two things are very much related. That when you're dealing with huge amounts of money, you have to have a cover for it. And so that just they have to be both. But I think sometimes they're neither. I think some of the times that Chuck is a great example when he's wearing that, maybe he is putting up a little bit of a front. Maybe he is blustering a little bit. But I don't think so. I think he was genuine when he was kind of lording over him and it didn't have anything to do with money. So I'm not sure what it means there. Jimmy, though, for example, was wearing green multiple times in episode seven and he usually doesn't wear green at all. When he was waiting for his community service, he's in this green sweater. And then later on when he's hustling and filming commercials, he's in that green button up, like a bright green. Both of those kind of do relate to money and having a cover, having a front, having to put on a persona. So it's likely that it's not just as simple as red or blue or green, is that maybe it's light blue or light green, green with blue, red with yellow. Maybe the how light or dark or what other colors are paired with could be as meaningful. It's a lot to process and analyze, and I feel like we're honing in on it, and I'm sure there's a community out there in the world that is too, and maybe the showmakers will even give us some clues at some point. I'll tell you two things. One, I definitely try to look at Reddit for anyone talking about color theory stuff, and there's no one that has laid it out super clearly or has figured it out, has honed in on it. But also, one thing that I wonder about, I've mentioned it before, is with regard to ties and t-shirts and blouses and stuff like that, what it means when they have a certain kind of pattern. When it's a pattern, like spirals versus stripes and stuff like that, I feel like that has to be significant as well. And you brought up a minute ago what's underneath versus what's on top. That could also be significant. Audio elements. There was a TV at Nacho's father's shop with some sports on, and it set the tone for the scene in some ways. And as a parallel, there was this kind of upbeat swingish music going on when the drugs were taken out of the Hermanos truck. It's like a kind of a montage scene where they're blowing off this whatever that was, that powder, the red, presumably something to keep it from being detected. The scene with all the overlays that we were talking about a minute ago. Right. I like the scene where we're hearing Kim's closing arguments over what we see Rebecca going to visit Chuck after the case. I thought it was kind of a good bookend to how we saw in the beginning the prosecuting attorney's arguments be made over Jimmy and Kim heading into the trial. Yeah, there was a really neat moment with Kim's little power nap, the way they edited it, so she woke up. It was really sneaky how it was kind of almost an optical illusion. Yeah, they just shifted it over a little bit, and then you hear the sound of the beeping of her alarm, and it really jolts you. Makes you really think about how much time you lose when you're sleeping. God. (laughs) (laughs) I also liked the sound of Kim dropping that huge book on the table during her meeting with Paige. Yeah, and then um, shortly after, they had that interesting cutoff where the scene ended (laughs) mid-word. And that was just an unusual thing to do, but pretty cool. When Jimmy is calling prospective clients who might get commercials, he's talking and he tells them how much it's going to cost and he just goes, hello? Hello? (laughs) He clearly got hung up on, but that was purely through audio and his dejected face that we were able to tell that. I thought it was a neat moment when Jimmy's kind of expressing his frustration with the time, with him not getting full credit for his time, and it shifts from him talking to that guy 
to kind of talk into the audience of people behind him and kind of turns and raises his voice a little bit to, trying to elicit some support. He yeah, uses the word us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> it doesn't come through, no. Come on, man. You're going to get in the van. <laughs> yeah. I also like the music that they repeated when Jimmy is racing to shoot commercials. They have this frenetic, you know, frantic music that shows what a rush he's in. Really funny moment is when Daniel Wormald is sitting out there waiting for Mike, basically waiting for Mike to notice him because he's not paying attention at all because he's playing this baseball game. Clearly, as you can tell by the sound of it, it makes a, uh, you know, the right when uh, Mike opens the door or right when he opens the window. Final thoughts. Since we're covering two episodes at once, we're each going to give two favorite moments from each one. Not that I don't usually give two or three favorite moments anyway. (laughs) You always cheat. (laughs) My favorite from episode six was the scene with Nacho sewing for multiple reasons. One of which is that the film work was really good there. But also Michael Mando's acting was very good. And I think it had a lot of depth to it. And that you were able to see how preoccupied Nacho was with the cartel stuff that he's involved in. And then my favorite moment from episode seven was when Drama Girl gave Jimmy his money back. One, it was heart-wrenching. It made me like her even more. I was sad. And just because Bob Odenkirk just looked so dejected there and he really showed how wrung out he was. I thought it was really well done. What were your favorite moments, Aziz? I really loved the bad acting of the recliner store guy. That guy was funny the way he, like, (laughs) finished his sentence and then points, you know, like, after this awkward pause. It was really funny. I liked how casual he was in his second take. I guess it was many takes later, but that Jimmy told him to act like he was talking to a friend, and he goes, take 10% off. You know, just like, (laughs) like, as if he just thought of it. It was actually a little bit better. (laughs) My second favorite is how... Both Nacho and Daniel Wormald say, don't get involved. I'm already in it. And both times it's said to Mike. <laughs> yeah, Mike is advising both of them to not get mixed up in this thing that's going to be trouble. And they're like, I'm already mixed like, up in yeah, it. Yeah, it's too late for that. Yeah, <laughs> I need you to help me now. <laughs> what about you, Sean? My favorite moment from episode six, it was it was a tough moment. Uh, I, I didn't really like it. I just like how well it was done. Was when Rebecca is confronting Jimmy and Kim as they're trying to drink their champagne and enjoy their victory. And she's like reminding them, hey, this wasn't really a victory, you know. And she's like, come on, he's your brother. And Jimmy says, not anymore, he's not. I thought that was a really, I don't know, tough, understated moment. And my other favorite moment was when we talked about a couple times was the meeting with Kim and Paige. Man, I think that was one of the best moments on TV this year. It was so well performed and pieced together and meaningful and demonstrative of their characters. And I mean, it was just... Color theory on point. Yeah, everything about it was awesome. Fandomedia.reviews. And that's our double episode for today. Thanks for tuning in to Fandomedia. I'm Faniel Wormald. I'm Fanita. And I'm Laser Tag Fanny.